Okay, so I'm glad you're here. There's a lot to talk about. We're, we're entering into a very exciting uh, part of the year, um, which, is, which is basically the New Year. And we just had uh, Shabbos Mavorachim, meaning to say we just blessed the month of Elul. And Elul is just as a, as a construct in terms of spirituality, time and space and everything like that. Elul is the month that precedes the New Year. So you have Elul and then you have Tishrei. And so Elul is all about getting ready for all of the things that are coming. And um, so the light of Elul is already in the world. And we'll see that in a number of places. But also, just in terms of trying to understand what the sage's attitude toward the new year is, and how to prepare for the new year, and what that means exactly. So we'll look at it in maybe a couple of sort of interesting uh, uh, novel ways, um, God willing. And before I get into that, I just want to uh, mention one thing. Just, uh, it just kind of struck me. You know, one of the things right now in terms of the zeitgeist, uh, you know, it's a, it's a cultural phenomenon right now, is all these things like podcasts and, and, and TED Talks. If you're not familiar with uh, TED, uh, TED.com, I guess, it's, or TEDTalks.com, I don't know what it is. You've got, is it TED Talks? So. TED.com. So it's, um, you've got people in cutting edge fields. Um, TED actually stands for Technology, Entertainment, and Design. And you've got leading thinkers talking about, like, trends and, and, and the future and, and where things are going and things like this. So um, I just read, I was intrigued by, by, by this article, and it's a, it's a long article. It's like, it's, it's, a, it's a hunk. I took a chunk of a day to, to read this thing. But I highly recommend it. You can get it online. It's, um, it's a critique of this social phenomena. And it's in this month's, um, so that would be August 2012, this month's New Republic. And I wish I could quote you the author. He has a, a long Russian name. But he, he zeroes in on one of the books. Ted, I guess, now has a, um, a, a publishing arm. And they, uh, they published this particular book talking about... Um, technology's role in the future, like the, the hybrid future, the, the, the merging of humanity and technology. And this is a, it, it's an amazing piece. It's an amazing piece because with intellectual rigor and what appears to be fairness, this person just eviscerates the, this, this, this particular book, but also highlights some of the shortcomings of just sort of like, just, just hypothesizing about the future in a way that sometimes can be sort of intellectually flabby. And so if you want to read a very interesting critique, I recommend that. But one of the points that he brings out, and this is what I, I wanted to mention, was and this is a recurring theme in his critique of this person's uh, kind of uh, prognosis of the future and how humanity and technology are going to converge and everything like this, is he keeps on saying that what this person is leaving out is politics, meaning to say, how are these ideas going to become implemented? Like, there's just all of this talk about ideas, but there's no talk about implementation, and the reason why I'm bringing up this point right now is to contrast Torah in a positive way with 
just hypothesizing. And there's nothing wrong with hypothesizing. You have to brainstorm and you have to generate ideas. And that's part of the, that's part of the process of, of, of making us all better and everything like that. However, it seems to me, and I'm going to suggest something, and maybe you'll, maybe you'll agree, maybe you'll disagree. But I'm sort of basing it on something that I heard from Reb Shlomo. He was talking about a Simchas Torah celebration in a town in Israel. And he said that there was a college professor there and everyone was dancing with the Torahs, the Torah scrolls, and they were kissing the Torah scrolls, right? And Reb Shlomo brought up this point. I don't know whether it was the mayor of the town who said this or whether it was Reb Shlomo saying this or whatever it is. But he said, do you ever see a Shakespeare professor finish a lecture about, say, Hamlet, for instance, close the book of Shakespeare and then kiss the Shakespeare book? Do you ever see that? And you, you don't. You really don't. And so there's something there. There's something there. That's a, that's a, that's a significant thing. And so building on that idea, I just want to say the following thing. Again, the idea is it's one thing to talk about the future and about how this technology and this trend are ultimately going to merge together. And then to leave out this whole idea, as the author was bringing out, of implementation or the political process. Here's what I'm trying to say. You see, when someone finishes learning Torah or a subject of Torah, the ideal is that you now want to implement it and you want to be kinder and a better person. And you want to be, you want to do a chesed, you want to do a kindness for someone else after your inspiration from this Torah idea. But if there's something that's just sort of like intellectual, after you finish intellectualizing, then you've concluded the process. In other words, the implementation doesn't translate from the idea to action necessarily. You know, we've had... One of the great tragedies of the 20th century has been the the big idea, meaning to say things like um, communism, for instance. It's a huge idea. And the idea was um, equality. Equality across the spectrum. Leveling the whole socio-economic, you know, stratas. So that the owner, the, the workers own the factories and that everyone is equal. And now once the idea becomes the apotheosis, it becomes the, the reigning thing, the most important thing, then human beings become secondary. And human beings can then be killed or are dispensable for the implementation of the idea, which is now primary. And so, so in Torah, In Torah, there has to be this fusion where you are the emissary, you are the last gateway of the idea, and it's now up to you. The conclusion of everything is now for you to be nicer, for you to be better, for you to be kinder, for you to be more giving. That's how it has to work. That's how it has to work. This level of fusion... And this is how the Torah concludes. So now, with that as an introduction, let's get into the beginning, because we're in the book, we're in the last book of the Torah right now, the fifth book, Sefer Devarim. And now let's talk about 
this fusion of, of thought and action. And we're going to see this paralleled in the month of Elul as well. Thought and action. Okay? In a moment. But let me begin by just situating where we are in the, in the Torah itself. So the fifth book of the Torah is different from the first four books of the Torah. It's as much of the Torah as any other part of the Torah, but at the same time, it's got a different quality to it. The different quality to it is that Moshe Rabbeinu said it, and then God said, write it down. That's the Abarbanel. Or, if you want to say it another way, I saw Rabbi Wolfson brought in the name of the Chassam Sofer, that Moshe Rabbeinu went to say it himself, but then the Shekhinah spoke through his mouth. So again, you have this fusion of Torah Shabal Peh and Torah Shebek Tzav happening simultaneously. It's the words of Moshe Rabbeinu, and yet nonetheless, God sort of put his stamp of approval on these words, and it becomes part of the five books. But again, what we have here just on a deeper level is something, is something that's crucial to the proper performance of Torah and the Torah vision of humanity and of the world, which is that at a certain point, it can't be just a book. It has to be you. I'll say that again. At a certain point, it can't just be a book. It has to be you. And that's why the last book of the Torah is the fusion of the written word and the personality himself, Moshe himself, coming together. An unbelievable thing. Now you see this in some amazing ways. The very first word of Sefer Devarim, of, of this book that Moshe starts to utter, is this word Ele. Okay? And that's, it, it means th- th- these words that, um, that Moshe is saying. So, these are the words that Moshe spoke to all of Israel on the other side of the Jordan concerning the wilderness concerning the Arabah opposite the Sea of Reeds. Between Paran, it goes on and on. But, but that's, the, that's the first word. Ele. Now, what's so intriguing about this word, and I heard Rabbi Kupfer brought this down. Amazing, amazing thing about this word. First of all, Ele is the gematria. It's the numerical equivalent 36. And the entire book of Devarim that Moshe is about to say was said over a period of 36 days. So here you have in the very first word, you have a blueprint of the amount of time that the entire book took to, to say. Because it was begun on Rosh Chodesh Shvat, and it concluded the seventh of the month of Adar. That's 36 days. Okay, that's, that's very striking. But more striking than that, I think, and, and, and even more connected to what we've been talking about between the, the, the fusion between the, the, the written word and you becoming an embodiment of that, is the fact that Ele 36, the first word of Devarim, is also the number of mesechtas, the number of volumes in the Talmud, which is the Torah Shabal Peh. In other words, the entire oral law is 36 volumes. And that's the first word that Moshe is uttering in Sefer Devarim. In other words, here he's becoming an embodiment of the oral law. So what's the oral law? 
That's where you look into the written word, and working within certain divine rules of understanding, you bring out how the law applies to this particular situation which may have never happened before. So again, you have that, that synthesis in that very first word. And that's, that's again what's incumbent upon us. Now, you know, I heard in the name of the Rokshitzer Rebbe, Something very interesting, which is, remember, the Torah is black fire on white fire. So, what, is, what does that mean? You see, black fire is that which is revealed, and white fire is that which is not revealed. It's there, but it's not revealed. Meaning to say that, that when you have a Torah scroll, it's not just the letters on the Torah itself that have sanctity, the white space also has sanctity and also has spiritual integrity. And in fact, the Noam Elimelech says that in the white fire, in the white space, contains all of the letters. And the Vilna Gon says that all the secrets of the Torah are in the white space. Right? It's also in the, it's also in the black fire as well. But it's also in the white fire. Because if you think about it, the white fire is containing all the combinations of all of the letters. So it's all, it's all there. But the Rosh says the following, which is that the black fire is the Torah Shebek Tzav, the written Torah. It's very clear. And the white fire is the Torah Shabal Peh. So, meaning to say, the explanations and how it's applied, right? So here we have, at the beginning of Sefer Devarim, when Moshe is speaking, we have the culmination, so to speak, of the white fire of the Torah. Now, now it's all about implementation. Now, I have a friend who said the following. He said, he said, all of life is the unprecedented present. Meaning to say, life is kind of funny. The unprecedented present. You see, you can learn how to um, deal with certain situations, but the way God crafts life is in such an amazing way that you've never, for the most part, experienced the next moment. So you never actually have a clear precedent of what to do every single moment. You have an idea, and the more experience that you have in a particular area of life, the more you sort of know what to do in that time, but you never know exactly what to do, because it's a new situation. It's a brand new situation. So how do you... That's like the white fire, because it hasn't been revealed yet. And so if you become like the white fire, meaning to say if you are locked into the Torah Shabbat path, if you understand like sort of the, the rhythms of the Torah, like I heard in the name of the Ramban, that by, by keeping all the mitzvahs, what you do is you sort of like hone your intuitive sense of what to do in each new situation. Like keeping the mitzvahs is like tuning your instrument. And then if your instrument is tuned, then you know how to react and what to do in each situation. 
I'll give you a, a, a small example. This happened to me this past week. Um, and I won't go into the whole thing. Basically, I, 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 I met someone and I was kind of talking some Torah with him and whatever, he, you know, was saying some things that were like off, you know, in my opinion. And I was trying to kind of kind of react and maybe guide him a little bit. I mean, that's, that's what I was trying to do, you know. If you met him, he'd probably tell you that I was off, right? But anyway, I'm giving this talk right now. So. <laughs> what is it? History is written by the victors, right? So, anyway, so... Um, <laughs> by the podcasters. So, I, I, I was trying to steer him toward my understanding because I, I, he was saying things that, that are just, were just, I, I, to put it nicely, incorrect um, according to our tradition. And, you know, it, it's hard to be in, a, in, in conversations like this, especially if you don't know the person well and it, 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 it's difficult. And one of the main things that you have to be very, very careful about is you have to make sure that you're disagreeing with the person's idea and not to hate the person. Because there's such a fine line between the two. Because these conversations become personal very quickly. And it's me against you. It's not, I have an idea, you have an idea, we're friends. The ideas might not get along. But we get along. That's the proper model. But believe me, it, <laughs> in, a, in, a, in a fraction of a second it switches. In a fraction of a, section, a, fra- in a, fraction of a second it switches to me against you as opposed to let's explore our two ideas. You know? And I felt like that was starting to happen between us. And then it's like, he made another point, and we were in a place where it's like, you know, it was, we had just kind of run into each other. We don't know each other well, and, you know, he had to go, and there was more to say on the point. There was more to say on the point about how wrong he was, and, and, and I, I would have had to have held him, so to speak, in his spot when there was a natural opportunity for him to go, which was very understandable, and the conversation had already kind of gone, you know, its, its natural course at this point. But still I felt inside myself this need to finish the point, translation, finish telling him why he was incorrect, right? Because there's an emotional component to these conversations often, unfortunately. And again, why am I telling you this story? Just to give a small illustration of something that I experienced in my own life, what I'm telling you in the name of the Ramban, that if you keep the mitzvahs, or if you're trying to keep the mitzvahs, whatever it is, that, that, you, that you'll get an intuitive understanding of what to do in the new moment, in the, in the unprecedented present, you know? And I just, like, like, heard a voice in my head. I mean, that was my thought. I mean, that's a strange way of saying it, but I, I had a thought, but I heard the thought, so to speak. And the thought was, let him have the last word. And 
So even though I had more to say, and really wanted to say it, I just stopped, and I let him finish his point, and that was it. And we left on a good note. He, he said, you know, we should stay in touch, and let me have your email, and everything like this, and we should get together. And something, it's like, so a little thing like that, a little thing like that, because, by the way, just I'm, I'm telling you, just as a separate point, it's part of this point, but as just as a separate point. When you get into conversations like this, allow the other person to have the last word. That that actually is, there's a, there's a power to that. That might sound very simple, but it gives a person a lot of dignity where they feel as though they've concluded the, the conversation. They've been heard. And you can utilize that in a, in a, in, once, you, once you know that this concept exists interpersonally. You can use that for your benefit, meaning to say you can do, use it to cultivate shalom, between, peace between you and another person. Okay? I found, by the way, that if you want to um, convince someone of something, that the best way to do it is not to try to convince them of anything. <laughs> because people don't like to lose arguments, and they don't like to be convinced of anything. Everyone has the right, and, and rightfully so, by the way, to decide things on their own. That's the way it should be, by the way. Because if a person decides something on their own, then they integrate it in a much more meaningful way. But in order to do that, the person, you have to respect the person and their ability to hear a point, and if they're serious, to think about the point. And then they'll decide if they agree with the point. But if you are hammering at a person, you, you have something, a, a phrase my father talked about all the time, a, what we call a, a Pyrrhic victory. I don't know if I'm pronouncing it properly, but where you win the battle and you lose the war. You can win an argument, but then that change that you hope to effect never happens. So you won the argument. What good was it? It, it didn't help you. Because you, you lost the war. Right? So if you want to win the battle and, and, and win the war, sometimes you don't win the battle so much. You know? So this is just a point. But anyway, I think that that... Um, to me, was an example of that sense of... Um, because no one taught me this, what I'm telling you, about letting the other person have the last word. I never heard anyone teach that. I never read that. I never read that point. But it just kind of came to me in the moment with this person. And so, again, this is, this is like the level of intuitiveness. This is the, the white fire. This is the Torah Shabbat that I'm... Um, that I'm talking about, that, that, that comes to a person, you know? So, so now I want to apply this to Elul. Because you see something very, very interesting. And by the way, Elul, so to speak, started last week. Not officially the month, we're still in Av. But the light of Elul, the light of the new year, is already shining in the world. Not officially, but like a taste of it. A taste of it is already, is already in the world. And I, I read to you from Rabbi Wolfson last week that, that we're already, after 
Shabbos Nachumu, after Tuba'av, on the bottom of this giant spiritual ladder that's leading all the way up to Shmini Yatzeris, we're already standing by this ladder. So this process is already beginning right now, that's going to culminate in this month of Elul, in Rosh Hashanah, in, in Yom Kippur, in Sukkot, in all these glorious, glorious opportunities, you know? Um, and it's in front of us right now. Now, now listen to this. Something very, very interesting. So the month of Elul, every month has what we call a mazel. That would be translated in this particular instance as a zodiac sign. Okay? So the zodiac sign of Elul is the basula, which is translated as a virgin. Okay? So, in, and in English we say Virgo the Virgin, right? So this is, this is a Torah concept. So what is this concept that the, the month before the new year is the month of the Basula, of the Virgin, right? So if you think about it, because this is dealing with um, all of us, so this is men and women, so, this is talking about a, a, a spiritual idea. Um, so, what is this spiritual idea? So, so, listen to this. I think something very interesting. None of us has experienced the new year that's about to come. So, so to speak, vis-a-vis the new year, all of us are like a basula. Because none of us have experienced the year that's about to come. Now, now that's, that's, that's important. That's important because within that point of view, I think the, state, the sages are giving us very proper instruction about how to view time and how to view the new year. You see... The first thing I think the sages are saying is something different is about to happen. Something that's going to change your state is about to happen. Something that you've never experienced before is about to happen. Meaning to say, it's not just a new year, which is just another day, and you know what, there are lots of ways of organizing time, and so, what difference does it make? No. Something new, a new light is about to come into the world. A new light is about to come into the world. And you've never experienced this light before. So all of us are basulas vis-a-vis this new light that's about to enter into the world. It also tells you that our direction has to be forward thinking. You see, because if we're just looking at the past, then it's sort of like, well... I've gone through New Year's before, so am I really a basula? How many, how old am I? So how many years have I gone through before? So I'm not a basula. No, you are a basula because this is something brand new. This is something you've never experienced before. All of us, all of us. Now, Now, the Mida, 
the quality that has to be fixed, according to our sages, in Elul is action. That's the, that's the quality that must be fixed in Elul, action. So, so the idea is that a person has to build a foundation to hold the light of the new year now. And again, I think that's what the sages are saying in terms of a basula, because when you think of a basula, you're also thinking of, of a womb, of a uterus. And so the idea is that you have to build a, a, a kli, a vessel, in order to hold this new light that's coming in. And that's what, that's what action is. That's the action that a person has to take. What, what do I want to be a vessel for? So, so you, have to, you have to start to think in a very real way. Right? You know, I read, I read a quote from a director, Quentin Tarantino. And he's not an old guy. I mean, he must be, when I read this, I probably read this quote about five years ago or something like that. And I'm guessing he's in his 30s or something. I mean, approximately 40s. Okay, so this was five years ago. So he said, he said something like, he was talking about his body of work. And he said, he said something like, you know what, I'm probably only going to make another five films. And so, I thought that was kind of interesting. Just the fact that he was being very realistic, and he's a, a successful movie director, so he can pretty much make as many films as he wants to make, you know, unless they all turn out to be terrible. But he was thinking very, very realistically. He said, I'm probably going to make about five more films. And these are the type of films that I want to make if I'm only going to be making five more films. Now that to me is, is a really interesting, really productive way of thinking. Because a lot of us are creative and, and we sort of, I'll speak for myself, there's this, this, this sort of um, surrendering yourself to the creative process. But in doing so, sometimes you also surrender yourself to all matters of organization and deadlines. And as a result, sometimes productivity completely flies out the window. And so the idea of asking yourself, what do I want to make myself a vessel for? You know, at a certain point, it's like, you know, you hear about a bris set. So you go, oh, okay, I'll try to make that bris or, you know, and there's another bris and or maybe there's an opportunity to say there's a cottage going on in shul and you can say amen or, or whatever it is. And, you know, if you're a, a regular shul goer, there seem to be limitless opportunities to say amen or not to say amen. If you're kind of in your own thoughts or you're not 
being particularly, you know, attentive. And yet it hit me at a certain point. Our lives are finite. There are going to be a certain number of amends we're going to say over the course of our lifetime. Maybe it's 20,000, maybe it's 30,000, but maybe it's 30,005. Or maybe it could have been 40,000 and it's only 10,000. But at a certain point, there's going to be a or number of brisses. Well, it looks like yeah, I'm going to a bris, another bris, another bris. But you know what? At a certain point, at the end of 120, there's going to be a number of brisses you're going to go do. It wasn't like, oh, the person went to a limitless number of brisses. No, there's going to be a number. And it's either going to be five more or five less or ten more or ten less. And and shiva calls. Oh, there's always oh, there's another one in the community, another one in the community. But again, there's going to be a number at the end of our lifetime how many shiva calls we actually paid. Right? We should only have simchas. But what I'm trying to to communicate is that there is a there's a finite quality to our lives and a certain level of expectations that we have to have about ourselves, what is it that we actually want to get done? And that's the idea of Elul, of this idea being a vessel, that you're creating a vessel for what it is that you want to get done with this new opportunity that's never been in the world before. And in order to do that, a person has to actually think constructively. Well, what is it exactly? What is it that I want to do? And whether it's a question of writing it down or speaking it out, and then you break that down into categories, right? So this is, this is a lot of the action that a person has to make. And now to get a little bit deeper, once you do that, there's a consummation as in the consummation of an intimate relationship that takes place if a person goes through this process. Now, the letter for Elul is the letter Yud. Yud, the Zohar says, represents a tipa zera, meaning to say the male seed. And so, all of a sudden, when you think of it in those terms, that the mazel of Elul is the basula, and the letter... Yud is a tipa zera, then all of a sudden you have conception. When you put these two things together, you have conception. And that's the idea. That's the idea. That Elul, meaning action, is this time where all of these things have to come together. And when they all come together, then... You make yourself a vehicle for this new year. You're impregnated, if you will, with the light of the new year and you can bring it into fruition. And you actually can bring it into effect in a real way. Because you've conceptualized it and you've taken action in order to realize it. Now I want to go deeper. We all know that every single month has a different arrangement of the Yud Kevavke, the holiest name of God, right? Yud and He and Vav and He. So, amazingly, 
the arrangement for the month of Tishrei. And that's, that's for the new year. And again, we're just about to enter into Elul. But again, the light of Elul and Tishrei and all of these things is already shining in the world on some level. Okay? I quoted you Rabbi Wolfson that says, as soon as we get to Tuba'av and Shabbos Nachamu, we're already standing at the bottom of the ladder leading up to Shmini Atzeres. So this process is already starting. So, so to speak, the culmination of it, which is happening in the month of Tishrei, is already with us a little bit. And I'm going to show you an example of that, something that I noticed, okay? Which is the arrangement of Hashem's name for the month of Tishrei is Vav and He and Yud and He. All right? Now, interestingly, that actually spells out a word. Vahaya which the Gomorrah says means it's going to be good. That's as opposed to Vayahi. Right? Which means it's not going to be so good. <laughs> but interestingly, if you want to see an example of our, of our outlook, of the Torah's outlook about the future, Tishrei, where the new light comes in, where the new year is being formed, the very name of God spells out Vahaya. That it's going to be good. That's an incredibly optimistic view of the future. Now, Vahaya, this is now the first week after Tuba'av. Okay? So the beginning of the process, leading up to the whole, right? The whole thing. The first word in Parshas Ekev is Vahaya. Now, isn't that striking that that's the arrangement of the Yud Vav for Tishrei? And I told you that on some level that light is already shining into the world now. And right after Tuba'av we have Vahaya as the very first word of the Torah portion, which shows you that the light of Tishrei is already shining into the world on some level. But now I want to say the deeper point. Vahaya is a fantastic construct on a grammatical level. And this is one of the coolest things as far as I'm concerned about the infinity of the Torah itself. Alright? Something called the reversing Vav. The reversing Vav is a um, Vav HaHefuk is, is something that you only have in Hebrew. No other language has this grammatical construct. Alright, so it's already showing you that there's something divine going on in terms of this. So what's the reversing vav? If you have a vav in front of a, of a verb, it reverses the tense of the word. So if you have, for instance, to give one example, if you have the past tense, right? Haya means was. Vahaya means it will be. It turns the past into the future. Now, I'd like to say, it's funny, I, I said this one time in a, in a class, like, a class I was attending that another rabbi was giving, maybe I said this thought, I think, 20 years ago. I was very excited about this thought. I had thought of this thing. And, and the, the, the rabbi said, he looked at me and he was like, 
Why are you interrupting my class with this? Just like, like this is basically nonsense. And I tell you, I've never let go of this thought. And I think this is one of the best thoughts I ever had in my life, by the way. I'm going to tell you now. Which is that, as a quality of the infinity of the Torah, because remember, the Torah is forever. It's beyond time. And so even though on a very superficial level, it's talking about past events, at the same time, anyone who understands what the Torah is, knows that it's, 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 it's beyond time and space, and it's talking about forever. Therefore, Hashem especially created a grammatical concept which makes the past the future, the reversing love, to show you on a grammatical level, on a here and now level, that the Torah is not the past. It's the past and the future. It's all time. Okay. A linguistic time machine. I like that, yeah. And as I've said many times also, the, the infinite compressed into the finite. You know, so here you see it on a grammatical level. But I didn't make the point. So, so I said, all of us are like in Elul, vis-a-vis the new year that's about to come, we're all basulas. Because none of us have experienced this new light which is about to enter into the world. And the whole magic, if you will, the whole miraculous nature, the whole spiritual greatness of Tishrei is it's a month of tshuva. We know that the, the incredible aspect of tshuva is that when you do something, if you correct a quality in the present tense, and if you do it out of love, that all the time you didn't do that thing in the, your past, it becomes like you did that thing in your past. It turns, it turns Avera's wrongdoings into mitzvahs. Can you imagine? If you fast on Yom Kippur, let's say you didn't fast on Yom Kippur before. Let's say you ate a, a cheeseburger on Yom Kippur before. If you start fasting on Yom Kippur right now, it's like you fasted on Yom Kippur your whole life. This is an incredible thing. You know, there's a famous story about the Berditch of Rebbe who went up to like the main, like, like this guy wasn't, you know, so connected, wasn't really doing many mitzvahs, maybe was doing mostly the opposite. And the Berditchever came up to him and said to him, I envy you so much. And, you know, like, what? You know, you're like one of the greatest tzaddikim, the greatest holy men that ever lived. What do you envy me for? And he said, because when you do tshuva, imagine all the mitzvahs you're going to have. Right? Like a whole lifetime of mitzvahs. They're just waiting. They're waiting like jewels, waiting to be polished. You know? So, so since, since Tishrei is the headquarters of tshuva, of, of repairing our actions, of elevating our actions, of returning to God, since Tishrei is the headquarters of this action, it makes perfect sense that the arrangement of Hashem's name would be Vahaya. Because Vahaya is talking about turning the past into the future. Meaning to say, looking forward, and Baha'i means it's going to be good. It's the transformation. That's what we're talking about. This reversing love. 
It's the transformation that takes place in his headquarters in Tishrei. Okay. But now, I still haven't really made the point yet. And this, I think, is the, 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 the deeper aspect of it. See, we've talked before about how a human being is above. Because how do you do it? How do you do it? You see, we have to be the Vav of Vahaya. You see, if you look, what, what is a Vav? The letter Vav is, is basically, it's a straight line. And every human being, man, woman, every human being is a straight line, is a Vav. Right? So, by the way, it's interesting because we're not just a Vav. We're also, we also, our bodies also spell out the name of God. I don't know if you're familiar with this, but the, the head is compared to a Yud. And then you have the arms are like a hay. And your trunk, your torso is like a Vav. And then the bottom aspect of your body, your legs, becomes like a hay again. So every single person is, it's Yud, your head, Hey, your arms, vav, your torso, and then your legs is the bottom hey. So what's so intriguing about this, it's, it's really amazing the way the Torah works, it's, it's, it's incredible, is that you are a vav, you are the vav within the yudke vavke. Meaning to say, to just sort of like pull out the lens a little bit, remember the name of God is also sort of a map of the cosmos. So, Yud and is the highest reaches of, of heaven. It's the emanation of the light. And then He is, is, is a vessel for that light. I heard in the name of Rab Tzadak HaKon, it's Olam Abba. Then you have Vav, which is a connector. Vav is drawing down that light into the bottom He, which is this world. Okay? So the Vav, so to speak, in this construct is the connection between heaven and earth. And all of us are connections between heaven and earth. That's what we're doing. That's what our body and our soul is. That's the interplay between body and soul. Because your soul is like a piece of God. It's like a piece of heaven. And what you do is you work with your body, which is, remember the word Adam, which means a person. Adam comes from Adama, which means the ground. So you're literally... Heaven and earth combined. Your soul and ground, Adam, Adama. Your, your, your heaven and earth combined. So every single person is above, connecting the heavens and the earth. And you're not just above, but simultaneously you're above within the wider construct of the Yudke Vavke, which is also evidenced on your body. So you see this, it's, it's just amazing how just all these levels are all existing simultaneously. Okay. So, again, let's go back to this word, Vahaya. So, you have to be that Vav, that reversing Vav. It's all on you. Because it's the Vav that turns Haya, which is the past, into Vahaya, which is the future, which is complete rectification, which is the good news that's coming. And it's all done through you. By being above, by channeling down the light, by imparting the light. 
That's the transformation that takes place and occurs. Very, very amazing. Very amazing. But the story in everything ends with you. And so, let me conclude by going back to the beginning. So, I heard Reb Shlomo say one time, you know, after a professor of Shakespeare finishes his lecture, does he pick up the book of Shakespeare, Hamlet, whatever it is, and kiss the book after he's finished? Or does he kiss the book before he begins, begins the lecture? Anyone who's learned Torah knows it's like you, you just, <laughs> it's the most natural thing in the world. You, you start to learn Torah, you, you kiss the book, you finish learning, you kiss the book. Because the lesson doesn't end on the page. Now we take what we've learned and we implement it. And we become kinder, better, more giving, more patient people. And then that's how the whole world transforms. Okay. Shem should bless us that we should really make ourselves vessels for this new light. And to think concretely, what do we want? What do we want? Our time is not infinite. What actually do we want? And then to spell it out and to break it down and to begin the action.